So now before we uh, open God's word together, let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we're in this series uh, to hear you speak. And so our prayer uh, each week and, and again this morning is that you would give us ears to hear. And, and not just ears to hear the, 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 the sound of the words spoken, but give us hearts, souls that can hear. Uh, that can hear the spiritual truth that you are saying. Uh, we, we, we ask for that this morning. And so we pray that the, the, the words of my mouth and, and the meditations of all of our hearts this morning would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in chapter 9 of John's Gospel. That's on page 861 of the Bibles the ushers handed out. And, and John chapter 9 begins with these words. Now, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And I want us to stop here for, for a moment before we actually get into the conversation and notice something that I think is important. The, the last thing we saw in chapter 8 last week was that this, this mob uh, had picked up rocks uh, with the intent of stoning Jesus, killing Jesus, but Jesus slipped away. The, the opening words of chapter 9 sort of make it sound like Jesus is on this leisurely stroll, right? As he walked along, as he passed by. And... Uh, I don't think that that captures really what's going on. As you know, when John wrote this gospel, there weren't chapter divisions, right? So that last thing we read moves right on into this. This angry mob is likely still pursuing him, looking for him, still intent on killing him. And John says that as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who was born blind. We'll learn in verse 8 that this man was also a beggar, which was sort of his lot in life, being born blind. He didn't have any other options. Jesus had just escaped this lynch mob, and he sees this blind beggar. And I think it's significant. I think it's significant for two reasons. One, I don't know all of you this morning. I don't know what... Uh, what sorrow you're facing, what, what challenges you're facing, what, uh, what dark things you're dealing with. But I do want you to know this, whatever those are, I believe this with all my heart, Jesus sees you. Jesus is never too busy to see you. So, so take heart in that. The other reason I think it's significant is because of my own tendency, and, and maybe you share this, my own tendency to not see the beggars, right? Part of me knows, a big part of me knows that it's usually a bad idea to hand cash to, to panhandlers. Uh, there, there are better ways to offer help, to, to get them food, to get them clothing, to get them a warm 
shelter or, or, or a job. The trouble is, knowing that often makes me look the other way. Why is that? Well, to reach in my pocket and, and give a buck to a beggar is easy, right? But to get them the help that they really need takes time. It, it, it will require me to get to know their situation, learn their story, maybe take them to the resources where they can get help out of the situation that they're in. But I'm a really busy guy. <laughs> maybe you are too. I don't know. I don't know what your reasons are. And so often I choose to look the other way. But not Jesus. Jesus sees this man. And John doesn't tell us how long Jesus and his disciples uh, stood there looking at the man before someone spoke up. But eventually one of the disciples asks, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind? This man or his parents? See, the common Jewish thinking was that every malady was the result of some specific sin. Now, we live in a, in a fallen world when, when sin entered the world, everything, absolutely everything was impacted by it. It's why we have sickness, right? So in that way, yes, sickness is a result of sin. But the ancient Jewish thinking was that sickness was a punishment for specific sin. Uh, the, the Talmud, the, the collection of uh, uh, Jewish law, how, how, to, how to keep the law. It even taught that an unborn baby could be guilty of idolatry if the mother went to worship at a pagan shrine. Okay? So in the disciples' minds, there are only two explanations for, for this man's blindness. Either his parents sinned, or, since he was born blind, he must have sinned while he was still in the womb. Now, this kind of thinking isn't really limited to ancient Jewish culture. Most cultures, I think, have some kind of sort of karma thinking, right? Um, most people want to think that things happen for a reason, of course he died of a heart attack. Look at the way he ate. Right? Lung cancer? Pfft. Saw that one coming. She smokes like a chimney. Dementia? You see how much Diet Coke that guy drinks? You should be concerned about me at this point. but what about the person who's a vegetarian and, and runs 10 miles a day and dies of a massive heart attack? What about the person who never smoked a day in their life and then comes down with lung cancer? It happens. What about the 50-year-old woman who, who eats well and, and has committed to serving in her church helping so many people. She's active. 
and then gets diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and within just a couple of years is dead. See, we don't have answers for those situations. But Jesus does. Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered, but this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus denies that this man's blindness is a punishment for sin, either his parents' sin or his own. And according to Jesus, seeing God at work in this person is the important thing, right? And this is one of those passages that gives translators kind of a hard time. Um, and, and the way that most of our translations have, have chosen to treat uh, these verses, I think, leaves it open for a lot of uh, confusion at the least and, and maybe some really bad theology. Uh, most of our translations make it, make it very clear that uh, this man's blindness isn't a punishment for sin. Okay? And, that's, and that's good. That is true. But um, they could imply or leave it open for confusion that maybe God made this man blind so he could show his power by healing him. And to my way of thinking, that just makes God out to be cruel. I mean, that way of thinking says that this man has been sentenced to a life of of begging because God decided to make him blind from birth. And Jesus has already made it clear that it wasn't because he sinned. God just decided to make him blind from birth only to later heal him and somehow bring God glory. What about all the people who don't get healed? What about them? That ends up just sounding cruel, right? God made them that way so that they would hope for a healing that never came. It doesn't make sense to me. And in my reading this week, uh, I discovered that, that many New Testament Bible scholars uh, have suggested a, a different and I think more accurate translation of this verse, which would read something like this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it is still day. Do you see the difference? I don't have time to go into all the reasons why I think this is a better translation of the original Greek, but I do think it's more consistent with the character of God. And if any of you want to talk to me about that later on, I'm, I'm happy to sit down and, and work through it with you. Um, but if, if this is an accurate way to read Jesus' answer, and I think it is, then seeing and engaging with those who are suffering is critically important. Because this is how God's works are displayed. 
And notice that Jesus said, we must do the work of him who sent Jesus. We're in this with Jesus. Now, where am I going with this? Jesus is answering a really important question about human suffering. The disciples want to know what caused the man's blindness. But Jesus doesn't tell them what caused it. He he, he tells them that it wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin. But Jesus says what's, what's way more important is what we do with this person who is suffering. Becky and I are working our way through a a TV series called Call the Midwife. And I may have just lost all all respect of all you really manly men. I don't know. Uh, Call the Midwife chronicles uh, the events of a group of nurses and midwives in London's East End in the late 1950s. And these uh, midwives and, and nurses work with a religious order of, of sisters who are charged with the spiritual and physical care of uh, primarily the women in their community. And Becky likes to tease me about watching a show about women having babies. Um, but I've decided that's not what the show's about. And it's not just in an attempt to protect my manliness, right? I really don't think that's what the show's about. I think that's the context. But I think what the show is really about is bringing dignity to people who are in very difficult circumstances. London's East End was known for its extreme poverty, drug and alcohol addiction, prostitution. It was a very dark and difficult place. Uh, In an episode we watched this week, a a woman with Down syndrome was one of their patients. And one of the nurses was asking the head sister, why would God do this to this woman? That's kind of the question the disciples were asking. And, and the sister replied, God was not in the event. God is in the response to the event. You see the difference? And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. The the people that we encounter who are suffering are are not always in the situation because of their own bad choices. Sometimes they are. We all know that, right? But Jesus seems to be saying that's not the right conversation. That's not the right question to be asking. The important thing is, to see is that the works of God are displayed when we do the work with him who sent Jesus. Okay, so that's that section. Meanwhile, while we're talking about this, and while the disciples and Jesus are talking about this, this blind beggar is still sitting by the side of the road. And he's sitting there listening to the conversation. You know, blind people have a heightened sense of hearing, right? Their their hearing uh, sort of makes up for their their loss of of sight. So this man has heard Jesus and the disciples walking along, and then he hears them stop. And then some silence as they stood there looking at him. Then he hears somebody from the group ask their rabbi about the cause of his blindness, 
And maybe the answer surprises the man since Jesus didn't blame it on sin. This might actually be the first person in his life who hasn't tried to blame his condition on his sinfulness. And then silence again as the disciples try to puzzle this out. And then the next thing the blind beggar hears And then the squish, squish, squish of making mud with it. And then, splat, splat! As he feels the mud hit his eyes. Not bad enough that this group stops to stare and talk about him without dropping a coin in his cup. The leader now puts mud in his eye. And then Jesus speaks to him, verse 7. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And John tells us that that word is translated sent. So the blind men went away and washed and came back seeing. Now let me ask you something. If you're sitting by the side of the road begging and someone puts mud in your eye, what would you do? I can tell you what I would do. The first thing I'd do is probably yell. Like, hey, what you got to do that for? Right? And then I would quickly reach up and, and get this gunk out of my eyes. Right? You with me? I mean, that would make sense. That would be normal. But this man, I think, is sensing something in this conversation between Jesus and his disciples uh, about this man's condition. Jesus isn't talking about him like others do. So when Jesus told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, maybe, maybe he recognizes that this was a reference to two Old Testament passages that speak about the Messiah coming. I wonder if he's beginning to connect dots. Has he heard about when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read the words that Lydia read for us earlier? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. It's here. Is there something in him that wonders if this could be that guy? Could this be the Messiah? Or maybe he just thought, what have I got to lose? We don't know. But somehow this man navigated himself to the pool of Siloam and he, and he washed off the mud in, in, in what, uh, at least in my reading, uh, seems to be these, these pristine waters that only the wealthy were bathing in. That's a whole other thing to imagine what, what they thought, right? But when he did, he could see. For the first time in his life, he could see. 
He could see all the things that had only ever been described to him before by others. The beauty of the sky and the trees and maybe a young woman. He could see color where he had only known blackness before. I imagine that the man made his way home, his his feet sort of knowing the way already. But his eyes are seeing for the first time the, the shops and the shopkeepers whose voices he knew, but they never had faces before. I imagine that he saw the colorful array of, of foods and fabric and housewares. He saw the donkeys and the, and the camels. Maybe he laughed to himself at these funny-looking creatures that he had only ever heard about. Oh, that's what makes that obnoxious noise. Now it makes sense. And all the while, I imagine him just saying over and over again, I can see. I can see. From verse 8 to verse 34, we have four different conversations that don't involve Jesus at all. And so we're, we're going to move through them pretty quickly. Um, it's Jesus' longest absence in the whole book of, of John. Um, but it's really, really funny. <laughs> so we got to at least look at it, right? In the first conversation, verses 8 through 12, the man's neighbors try to figure out if this is really him, right? Some say it is him. Others say No, it just looks like him. It's like a scene from a Monty Python sketch or something. And and the man keeps saying, no, it's me. Really, it's me. I'm I'm the guy, right? And he tells them the story of how Jesus made mud, put it in his eyes, told him to go wash, and, and now he can see. Well, where is this Jesus, they ask him. And of course, he doesn't know. When Jesus sent him off to wash, Jesus went somewhere else. This man's never seen him. He's only heard his voice. Second conversation John records is between the man and the Pharisees in verses 13 to 17. And in verse 14, John tells us those fateful words that we've heard before. It was the Sabbath when Jesus made the mud and healed the man. Cue the ominous music again, right? Because you see, making mud is what you do when you make bricks, and making bricks is work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. Therefore, the man who healed the blind man has broken the Sabbath. He's a sinner. After the man who had been born blind tells them the, the whole stories... The, the, the Pharisees argue among themselves about whether a man uh, who can heal blindness from birth is a sinner or a saint. Is he from God or Satan? Now, this kind of thing had never happened before. No one had ever... There was no record, anyway, of anyone ever being healed of, of blindness from birth. So the Pharisees asked the formerly blind man what he thinks. 
He says, I think he's a prophet. Third conversation, verses 18 to 23, the Pharisees decide that this is probably some sleight of hand. This is, this is just a trick, right? Maybe this guy wasn't really blind to begin with. So they call in the man's parents. Is this your son? Yes. And was he born blind? Yes. Then how is it, they say, that he can now see? And it's at this point that the parents freeze. They clam up. John tells us in verses 22 and 23 that the Jewish authorities had already sworn that anyone who confessed Jesus would be thrown out of the synagogue. And being thrown out of the synagogue was was sort of shorthand for being excommunicated from the whole uh, Jewish life, the the whole Jewish community, because the, the, the synagogue was the hub of that community. And if you were put out of the synagogue, you really were better off just leaving the area altogether. And so when the Jewish authorities asked the man's parents how they explained the healing, they say, ask him yourself. He's a big boy. I mean, the translations, they they put it maybe a little more polite than that. That's what they're saying. Took the cowardly way out. They're protecting their own interests, their own positions maybe in the community. Fourth conversation, verses 24 to 34, the Jewish authorities summoned the formerly blind beggar back in for his second interrogation. And they make him swear an oath to tell the truth. That's what they mean in verse 24 when they say, give glory to God. It it was their way of saying, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And then they say to the man, we already know that this man Jesus is a sinner. And the man says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. But how did he do it? You see where they're going. What did he do to make you see? And, and the man's response just, I think, shows John's love for comedy. Even when writing the sacred words of Scripture. Verse 27, he answered, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you people want to become his disciples too? <laughs> his response reminds me of the multiple border crossings or customs officers I've encountered over the year. Many, many times Becky and I have traveled into restricted access countries and, and their airports, if, you, if you've never done this, they're, they're nothing like PDX. I mean, people don't, you know, take pictures of their feet with the beautiful carpet, right? There's armed guards with machine guns everywhere. No one says, how was your flight, Mr. Christensen? No one says, oh, I hope you enjoy your stay at the hotel. By the way, there's this wonderful little cafe just around the corner. I think your wife and you would love it. No one does that, right? Grumpy faces with guns. 
And trying to be funny with these guards is a really bad idea. Uh, you, you literally could end up in jail very, very easily. You don't really even want to smile at them because then you're, you're suspect of, of something. This man probably knows that his is a lost cause already. Uh, the Jewish authorities have already made up their mind about Jesus and about this man who used to be a blind beggar. He probably reasons, what have I got to lose? I know what's coming anyway. And, and he was right. Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for him, referring to Jesus, we don't even know where he comes from, which is interesting because in chapter 7, they said that he came from Galilee and they used that against him. But these arrogant religious bullies often assume that, that their insults will carry the day. They, they often don't take the time to think through the weak argument that they're making. I think these Jewish authorities assume that the blind beggar is stupid, which is a whole other thing that we sometimes do with disabled people. But the way that the man responds shows that he actually is way more astute than they are. Verse 30, the man answered, Now that is really remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So rightly, I think the man reasons that the only person who could do what no one in history has ever done, opening the eyes of a man born blind, this, is, this isn't some miraculous cataract surgery, okay? This man's eyes have never worked, ever. They're dead, And the man reasons that only somebody from God could do that. And I think he's implying here that this man's probably the Messiah, the one the prophets said would do what? Open the eyes of the blind. They're not having it, which is no surprise. Four interrogations all resulted in the same consistent story. This man was born blind and Jesus healed him. That's the truth. These guys aren't interested in the truth. They're going to they're gonna keep using their legalistic phrases over and over again, never once stopping to let the light of Jesus illuminate their darkness. This is what legalists do. Legalists today do the same thing. So these guys fire one more parting insult, saying that the man has been steeped in sin from birth. If all else fails, just call him a filthy sinner, right? And they excommunicate him from the synagogue, which meant, as we saw earlier, that he will be shunned from the very life of the community. In some ways, this 
this man's situation has, has gone from, from bad to worse. Before he was a blind beggar that no one noticed. Now he can see, but he's being completely shunned from the community that he was on the fringes of before. Before he could beg, but now he's able-bodied. He can see he'll be expected to get a job. Except now he's been put out of the community and no one will hire him. It's precisely at that moment that Jesus comes back into the story. Verse 35. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found the man. He went looking for him. And he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the Son of Man is is the prophet Daniel's way of referring to the Messiah. So uh, Jesus is asking the man if he believes in the Messiah. Verse 36, the man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. And then Jesus says, You have seen him, and he is speaking to you now. I get chills when I read that. This is the first time this man has laid eyes on Jesus. Someone that he's wanted to believe in. You have seen him, and he's speaking to you now. And the man says, yes, Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped Jesus. The the word underneath worship here means to fall face down. He fell face down and worshiped him. This story, you see, is, is about a double miracle. At the beginning of the story, the man receives physical sight. And at the end of the story, he receives spiritual sight, which is just as big a miracle. And Jesus' response in verse 39 is, is sort of the, the hinge into the next conversation that we'll look at next week. It, it, it serves as an ending sort of to this story about the blind beggar, and it serves as an opening to the next conversation And I especially like how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. Verse 39. Then Jesus said, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear, so that those who have never seen will see. And those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. Jesus had said in, in verse 4 that he was the light of the world. That was a, he was repeating something he had said in chapter 8, uh, verse 12, I think it was. And, and we see here that uh, his light has two very different effects on people. For some, uh, his light will, will draw people to him like, like like to the warm glow of a fire. But for others, his light scatters them like rats or cockroaches. They hate the light. They want to hide in the shadows. They're blind to the things of God and they want to stay that way. 
And unfortunately, what this story shows us is that sometimes the rats and cockroaches are present in the religious communities too. Which means we should all listen to Jesus' words with, with great sobriety. Which one am I? Am I drawn to the light of the world? Or do I run and hide when his light shines? Do I recognize my blindness? Or do I pretend that I can see and prove that I'm actually blind? And this is really the first question we all need to ask when we listen to this conversation, when we, when we try to apply it to our own lives. Am I a person like this man who says, I once was blind, but praise God, now I see. Or am I a person who says, my vision's just fine. And in saying that is, is saying that they really don't need Jesus. They're identifying with the rats and the cockroaches. That's the first thing. The second thing I think we need to wrestle with is how we view people who are suffering. Am I a person who's always trying to assign blame on, on why the person is in the circumstances they're in? Do, do I withhold help because I think they deserve to be where they are anyway? Do I, do I think that this is somehow God's punishment on them? Or will I hear Jesus' words in verses 3 and 4 as a call to do the work of God in people's lives? Well, I take seriously his words that we, all of us, must do the works of the one who sent Jesus. What would that look like for each of us as, as we move through our day-to-day lives? I wonder who are, the, who are the people that I need to see that have previously been invisible to me? These are tough questions. I'm going to require the gift of sight from God. And for that, we should pray. So let's do that. First of all, God, where we are spiritually blind, uh, we pray this morning for sight. Open the eyes of our hearts to rightly see our spiritual state. Shine your light into our areas of blindness. May we be drawn to you. Would you also open our eyes to the works of God that you want us to step into? Show us the people we're blind to, people that you want us to bring dignity to, people who need a touch from Jesus. And may we somehow be that touch of Jesus in their lives. Open our eyes to these things and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.